Hello, my name is Stephen Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to a series of podcasts brought to you by Zimmer Marketing to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. JFK was shot at almost exactly 12.30 p.m. on Friday, November 22, 1963, in front of the Texas School Book Depository Building, now known as the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas, Texas. He was shot while riding in an open car in a motorcade on a political trip to Texas, and he is the only president to have been assassinated by a high-power rifle. He was officially pronounced dead about a half an hour later. The governor of Texas was riding in front of him. He, too, was wounded, but recovered from his wounds and went on to live a long life. It was a dark, terrible, and violent weekend for the United States. Two days after JFK died on a Sunday morning, his accused assassin, 24-year-old Lee Harvey Oswald, was also fatally shot by Jack Ruby, a Dallas nightclub owner in the basement of the Dallas Police Department. That murder was shown live on national TV. Ruby was convicted of killing Oswald, but that conviction was overturned, and he was awaiting a new trial at the time of his death from cancer a few years later. Our guest on this podcast, Part 1, is Buell Wesley Frazier. Frazier, then only 19 years of age, knew Oswald and drove him to work that fateful morning. We spoke to him a number of months ago, not long after the publication of his book, Steering Truth. Mr. Frazier says putting that book together was a huge undertaking. Well, one of the biggest challenges uh, for me uh, in doing this book is that um, so many people that I talk about in my book are gone, like my two sisters and the brother-in-laws have passed away, and uh, Mr. Truly and Mr. Shelley, who I worked with and under there at uh, Texas School Book Depository, and uh, they're gone, as well as my good friend uh, Gary Mack, who was with the uh, Sixth Floor Museum. Um, and... Although it was able for me to tell my story, um, I just thought that uh, without their quotes, but it's uh, to me it's uh, such a big part of my life and a special tie in their own ways, these people I talk about, that I thought that uh, I needed to mention them in my story to bring them to life, to let people know who they were. As far as... My, um, about me, um, let me explain. Um, I grew up in uh, southeast Texas in a very, very small town. Um, the town was uh, so small we didn't even have red lights. And um, that's where I grew up. And uh, and I had an offer to come to uh, Irving, Texas, which is uh, located between Dallas and Fort Worth. Um, my my sister and her husband and his three children live there in Irving, and they offered me to come to uh, Irving to help me uh, try to do, uh, try to seek a better life than what I had. And uh, so I took that opportunity, and I I um, moved to Irving and I started to look for work, and uh, I found work at um, 
Texas School Book Depository. And I went in and I interviewed with Mr. Truly, and uh, he hired me that day. But before he hired me, he told me he was off of hard work. And I told him, I said, uh, well, I think I can handle that. What Mr. Truly didn't know, I grew up uh, working hard at an early age all my life and sometimes working on ranches. And for the ones that have worked on ranches, uh, doing everything from building fence to uh, um, working with uh, cattle, uh, vaccinating calves and so forth, sometimes you have to maybe sew a calf down that weighs 350, 400 pounds. Well, you have to know how to do that, and it can be a rough job. But um, I got through that, and uh, I graduated from high school, and I uh, took the offer that my sister and husband offered. And so I got there, and uh, as I said, I uh, applied at Texas School Book Depository, and uh, Mr. Truly uh, hired me, and I started to work there as an order filler. And I had been there probably around a month, a little over. And one day I was um, working for an order, and Mr. Uh, Shelley, my correct supervisor, uh, he called over the loudspeaker for me to come to his office. And so I said, I'll be right there. And so I uh, reported to his office, and there standing with him was a young man that um, I did not know. But uh, Mr. Shelley, uh, Bill Shelley, inter introduced me to uh, the young man. And he says, uh, and by then I went by Wesley. And he said, Wesley, he says, this is Lee. He's going to be working with us. And he said, I want you to teach him to fill orders as well as you. And so I said, yes, sir, I'll do the best I can. So for the three or four days, next three or four days, um, uh, Lee was with me. He was like my shadow. And he watched everything I did. Um, he asked good questions. Uh, he learned very quickly. And I was really happy with that. Um, and uh, he, um, so after three or four days, I was riding on my way to work. Um, I said, well, I think we need to find out what this guy has learned. So I picked out some of the easier orders. And gave him, put him on a clipboard, and I said, I want to see what you can do by yourself today. I said, I'll be here if you have any questions. Just come up to me, and we'll talk about the question you have about uh, the filling of the order, and I'll help you, and we'll get it done. And so he accepted that. And first of all, I'd like to tell people, um, I never had met uh, Lee Oswald before that day, his first day at work there at Texas School Book Depository. But the thing I liked about Lee was that he was always on time. Uh, he was smart. He was a quick learner. He wasn't a slacker. Uh, he um, he always uh, did anything you asked him to do. And uh, so, therefore, uh, and, and we worked together. And then um, on the weekends, he would ride home from me with me on Friday afternoon and come back with me on Monday morning. Now, you said ride home with me. Well, he didn't go home with me particularly. His wife was living with a lady by the name of Ruth Payne, who lived about a half a block up the street. And um, so he would ride home with me, and uh, 
his wife lived there with Miss Payne, and they had one child. And then uh, Marina, his wife, was pregnant with their second child. So he would uh, ride home with me on Friday afternoon, as I said, and ride back with me on Monday morning. Now, during this time, uh, when I would let him off there in front of the paint house, um, I did not see Lee uh, after Friday afternoon to Monday morning. Uh, he would, um, I gave him that time to spend with his family because I realized that was very important to him. But the thing is, all the children in the neighborhood soon learned that Lee would ride home with me on Friday. And the reason I know this because my sister's three small children used to go up the street to play with uh, Lee and the other children in the neighborhood. And they were all excited about Friday because one thing was Friday was the last day of the school of that week. And then uh, Mr. Lee, as they called him, was there and he used to play games with them under the big oak tree that stands in front of Ruth Payne's house today. Uh, she does not live there. Ruth Payne does not live there today, but the tree is still there. And I often say to myself, if that tree could talk, all oh, the stories it could probably tell you. Um, so, uh, so let's get to the day that a lot of people are interested about, uh, November the 22nd, 1963, which was a Friday. Well, Lee had asked the day before on a Thursday, could he ride home with me? And I said, sure. I told you, you could go anytime you want. So he rides home with me on Thursday afternoon, and I asked him, I said, you know today is not Friday. And I said, why are you going home on Thursday? He said, well, he says, Marina has made some curtains for me to put up in the rooming house. And by the way, I didn't tell you, um, Monday night, so Thursday night, he lived, He had a room at a rooming house in Dallas, and that's where he would stay. So getting back to asking him, well, why are you going out to Irving? He said to get some curtain rods to put the curtains up that Marina had made for him. So I said, okay. Didn't think any more about that. And so uh, comes Friday morning. Uh, instead of me picking him up in front of the house, Lee, that morning, he comes down to where I live, uh, and he puts he had a package with him, and he puts that in the back seat of my car. Well, my sister saw him uh, walk across the street and put the package in the back seat of my car. Well, then he comes to the uh, then he comes and looks in the kitchen window, which is totally unusual. He'd never done that before. So my mother was staying there with us, and so she looks up and sees him looking in the window, and it startled her, and she says, who is that man looking in the window? And I said, where? Because we had more than one window there in the area where we were, and so she told me the one at the, uh, at the kitchen sink, and so I looked over, and there he was looking in the window. And I said, whoa, that's Lee. He, he rides to work with me, and he works in Dallas. So I go to the... Um, I get up from the table, and I go to uh, the door, and he comes around to the carport, and I asked him, I said, would you like to come in and have a cup of coffee? I'm just finishing breakfast. And he says, no. He said, I'll just wait for you out here. So I go back, and I finish eating my breakfast, and, uh, and I get up from the table, and I go brush my teeth. Well, why 
I'm going to brush my teeth and everything. My sister always made my lunch, so she had finished that up. And so I got my lunch and and my jacket, and we left to go to work in, in Dallas. Well, as I was sitting down in my car, which was parked outside of a double carport, I uh, I noticed a package on the back seat. So I said, what's in the package, Lee? He says, oh, don't you remember? He says, curtain rods. He says, I told you that yesterday. I said, yes, you did. So I didn't think anything about it. And that morning was just like any other morning, but this morning it was misty rain and um, the uh, the raindrops on the windshield was real fine, like um, um, say they was like a, a straight pin or a needle, real fine uh, mist. And so back then, the car I had then we didn't have intermittent wipers, so I had to turn the wipers on and off. And so I said, I wish it just rain or uh, uh, or stop. Well, it did this all the way to work. And so we get to the parking lot where I parked my car. And by the way, most of the people I work with did not drive to work. They they uh, rode the uh, bus. So I parked my car in the parking lot, which was a, a good 250 to 300 meters away. And so we get so we get there, and uh, we get there a little early. So I um, charged my battery a little bit because back then uh, we had um, generators and voltage regulators. Well, the voltage regulator would stick; the points would stick and pull all the juice out of your battery. So when you try to start, it wouldn't start. But today, um, the voltage regulator. And uh, generators all built into one called an alternator. So um, I charged my battery for a few minutes, and and so he stood by the car, got out of the car, and stood by there. And then he realized what I was doing, so he takes the package out of the car, and he starts to walk up to where we work. And I never did catch up with him because um, I didn't think it was important uh, first thing, and uh, then. Um, but usually we walk together, but I didn't think anything about that. And um, so he gets a package out of um, the back seat of the car, and he uh, puts one end of the package in the, the cup of his right hand and the other on his armpit. So he walks ahead of me, and uh, he goes into the uh, goes up on the loading dock and into the uh, building where we work. Well, I didn't see him for some time after that, but. Uh, I get there, I go in and I clock in and I go and put my coat up and my lunch up, which I always had a place down in the basement. And by the way, the people are not familiar with the Texas School Book Depository, which is now known as the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas. Um, it had uh, seven floors in a basement. And I always put my lunch and my coat down in the basement because it's always cool down there year-round no matter how hot it was. So I didn't have to put my lunch in the refrigerator. It kept nice. But, um, and I did see him several times um, that morning. Off and on, we passed one another working, filling orders and everything. But during the morning, uh, we had a, 
the man that worked there by the name of Junior Jarman. He's the one that checked the um, the small uh, package orders that would be uh, being shipped by U.S. mail. Back in those days, we didn't have FedEx and UPS. So when we shipped a uh, order of books to a school or college, uh, it was shipped um, one or two ways. Either U.S. mail, which was small packages, and then uh, the larger shipments was by the freight line. And uh, so um, uh, Junior was um, checking some orders. And by the way, he rode the bus to work, as I said, most uh, employees did. He said, I want to show you something. He says, come over here, Wesley. And I said, Junior, I'm very I'm very busy right now. I said, I got a lot of orders to fill. I said, it's a heavy day. And I said, maybe a little while later, well, I come back to my box to get some more orders. And he says, he said, Wesley, he says, come on, I want to show you something. Well, Junior bought a newspaper every morning on the way to work. While he was, he'd start reading the paper while he was waiting on the bus. Um, so in the paper, he showed me there was a parade route of John F. K's, uh, presidential motorcade route. And he, and it showed that the, uh, parade was going to come right by the building. And so he says, he was really excited about that. And he said, do you think we'll be able to go out and watch a parade? And I said, well, Junior. I says, I just work there. I says, you know, I'm, I'm not in management. I'm not anybody's boss. I said, I don't know. Well, I come back to the box a little while later and get some more orders. And he asked me, so I made up my mind. I said, I'm going to go ask Mr. Shelley. Well, I went and asked Mr. Shelley, who was my supervisor, and asked him. And he says, well, he said, Wesley, he said, I'm going to have to ask Mr. Truly, which was his boss. And it turned out Mr. Truly had to go see Mr. Kaysen upon the uh, second floor. He was everybody's boss in that building, regardless of uh, what publishers. And we had a lot of publishers in the building. So sometime afterwards, uh, probably around 10 o'clock, 1030, something in that area probably, uh, Mr. Shelley told me, he said, you can tell the guys they're going to be able to go out and watch the uh, presidential parade if they if they wish to. So I, I went by and I, I told uh, uh, Junior Jarman that, and he was really excited, so he passed the word around. And the thing I didn't tell you was that um, uh, Junior Jarman was a, um, uh, he was a bright man, a very nice person, uh, um, really like Junior. He was really a good worker, but you have to remember the time when this happened. This was back in 1963, and things weren't really great in this country then because uh, it was the beginning of the civil rights marches and so forth down in Alabama. And so Junior, being the person he was, he didn't know exactly how to go and ask Mr. Shelley. Uh, even though Mr. Shelley was his boss as well as mine. But he had picked up on that. Uh, I seemed to have a good rapport with Mr. Shelley. And um, so that's why he asked me. And um, we had a great crew that worked there. We really worked well together. Um, and it was a lot of work and it was hard work. 
Um, some of the guys I worked there with uh, was Billy Lovelady and um, Jack Daughtery and Charles Gibbons and um, quite a few others. But we all worked together. It didn't make any difference where we came from or what the color of our skin was. We were a team, and we worked very well together. And I'm very proud of that. Um, and so we it comes time, and and so we break at lunch. And uh, time I got out to the front steps of the Texas School Book Depository, uh, there was already a crowd there, and everybody was anticipating uh, watching the uh, the parade come by. And if you stop and think about it, how many times have you? in your life, been able to go out and observe a presidential parade passing by the building where you, you were employed. Well, that's the only time in my life that ever happened. And so everybody was excited about that. Um, you know, back then, being a young boy, I, a country boy, I didn't, I didn't really realize how important that was until years later. And I realized that what I had an opportunity to witness and see. And I remember talking uh, to a lady standing beside me, uh, Sarah Stanton. And back then, uh, we had magazines called Look Look and Life magazine. And the photography in those magazines were fantastic. And you think about all the uh, technology we have today that we didn't have back then. Those were uh, photographers were a special, special type of person. The pictures in their magazines were so beautiful. And that well, I remember making the comment to Sarah Stanton that when the uh, presidential motorcade passed by and made the turn off of Houston onto Elm Street there, I said, look at Jackie, how beautiful she is. I said, she looks just like the pictures. It was almost like um, is that you knew them personally from reading the magazines and looking at the magazines. Um, and, of course, the, the presidential motorcade passes by and goes down toward the Temple Underpass. And um, then, but before uh, they made the turn to go down toward the Triple Underpass, the uh, motorcade is being led by... Uh, police officers on motorcycles, and they were cutting them off and, and cutting them back on and making them backfire. And I had never seen that before, and I thought that was unusual. But I was just observing what I didn't know that was part of the celebration of what I didn't know. But the presidential motorcade passes by me and goes down, and I can't see. And then I hear this this loud noise. And at first, I thought it might have been one of the motorcycles. But then, a very short time later, there was two more uh, sounds. And I realized then that that, was, that wasn't that was a backfire. That was someone shooting a firearm, a rifle, or something. Growing up in the country, I was a big hunter, so I knew how uh, the rifles sounded. And what people have to realize, Mr. Smith, um, on a, in a November, 
Adili Plaza. It is uh, closed on three sides and open on one. And so with the wind swirling and that type of year and it being cold, um, the sounds can uh, echo and play tricks on your ears sometimes. You think you hear more of something than you actually hear. So it was three shots. And um, so very shortly after the third shot, a lady come uh, running up the sidewalk. And by the way, the sidewalks along the buildings and everything was really packed. Uh, There's a lot of people. I can't begin to tell you how many people were there, but there was a tremendous amount of people there and all along the parade route, even on Main Street and everything. Um, so she came running up, and she was crying, and she uh, she said they shot the president. That concludes part one of our interview with Buell Wesley Frazier. I'm Stephen Smith. He continues talking to us in the second part of our podcast, and we invite you to listen to that. I'm Stephen Smith. And this is part of our commemoration of the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy.